Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I want to start by telling you an old Chinese story about a woodcutter. And this woodcutter lived in a village with his wife and with his son. And he was poor. He, he didn't have a lot. He lived in this uh, pretty small hut. Uh, they, they could eat, but they weren't eating particularly well. They were um, scraping together what they could to get by. But the, the woodcutter had one possession that was valuable, and that was a horse. He had this magnificent horse that he kept outside his little hut, and it it was his pride and joy. But all of the woodcutter's friends said to him, look, mate, you don't have much money. Why don't you sell this horse? You could get a decent price for it. And if you sold the horse, you'd be able to eat better. You'd be able to upgrade your living conditions. You'd be able to provide for your family a lot better. He says, no, no, I'm not selling my horse. My horse is my most prized possession. Well, one night, what happened is the woodcutter went to sleep, his family went to sleep, and when he got up the next day, the the rope that he he used to tie the horse up was there, but the horse was no longer there. His pride and joy, this horse, had gone. Uh, And his friends said, look, your horse has been stolen, you should have listened to our advice. If you'd have sold it, you'd have had money. Now, you don't have money, you don't have the horse, you have nothing. This is very bad. And he said to them, Don't say this is bad. Just say, my horse has gone missing. You don't know if this is good or bad. Well, two weeks later, the horse turns up again. uh, and, And it's not been stolen. It's just run off into the forest. And when it comes back, it brings with it 12 wild horses that it's managed to befriend and brought to this woodcutter. So this man who did own the one horse, now he owns 13 horses. Uh, And his friends come to him saying, this is brilliant, this is amazing, you now have 13 horses. And he said to him, I thought thought two weeks ago this was bad, uh, that my horse ran off, now you say it's good. Don't say that this is good. We don't know if this is good or if this is bad. Just say, I used to have one horse, then I had no horses, now I own 13 horses. And then what happens is the woodcutter's son is trying to break in these wild horses. He's trying to uh, get them so that they're tame, so that they're usable, maybe with a, a view to sell some of these horses and make money. But this wild horse throws the woodcutter's son off and he lands and he breaks his leg. And then the woodcutter's friends come to him and say, this is really bad, your son's broken his leg. This is really bad. I thought it was really good that we'd got these wild horses. But don't say that this is bad. You don't know whether this is a bad thing or a good thing. Turns out that um, just at the time this was happening, a war had broken out with the nation. And then uh, the king sent some of his men to conscript all of the young guys in this village into the army to go fight this war. And the one who doesn't have to go is the woodcutter's son because he's got a broken leg. And his friends come to him and he say, and they say, this is really good. Your son doesn't have to go to the war. Oh, it's good that he's broken his leg. I thought it was bad before. And so the story goes on. And the way, the way the story is told, you can go on and on and on and on. Now, the reason I'm telling you that story this morning is not to suggest there's no such thing as good or bad. It's not to say that we can't look at the things that happen in our lives and celebrate or, or grieve. It's important that we do those things. 
But what I am trying to suggest this morning is to, to rightly understand things, particularly the struggles, particularly the hardships, particularly the difficulties in life, to rightly understand them, sometimes we need to step back and see a bigger picture. When we look too granular, when we look too in the weeds, we can despair. The, the things that happen to us can crush us without understanding everything that's going on. So we're talking about the Holy Spirit this term and being filled with the Spirit and living by the Spirit. And what I want to convey to you this morning is that being filled with the Spirit is not a fair weather blessing. Being filled with the Spirit is not something that only makes a difference in our lives when things are going well. It's not something that we think, okay, everything's great, everything's rosy. I'm going to gather together with some people, we'll sing some songs, we'll share some prophetic words, we'll, we'll have kind of this buzzing moment, great, I've been filled with the Spirit. And that's the only difference it makes. Actually, being filled with the Spirit is something that profoundly impacts the way we engage with hardship in our lives. You know, often when I hear people teaching or when I'm preparing teaching myself, one of the questions that I like to think about is how this teaching would land with different people. So we've got friends who we, we partner with involved in churches in Ukraine. And I think about them and I think about the message that we bring, the things that we teach about. If I was to share that message with some of those friends, with the circumstances they're in at the moment, I think, how would this land? Could, could I, with a straight face, say, this is what the word of God says, knowing that those are the difficulties that they're facing? Or I think about friends of mine who've just had the call from the hospital and they've got a diagnosis that they didn't want to hear. Would this teaching land well? I think about people who struggle to put meals on the table. How does it land? Because if it only lands, if the things that we say only make sense for people when all things are going well, then I'd suggest we're not teaching the Bible properly. So much of the Bible was written in a context of hardship, a context of suffering, and it's a message of good news for people. So we're going to read in Romans 8 again. We've been working our way through this chapter, uh, and today I'm going to read verses 18 to 25. I'd invite you to either turn there in your Bibles, or uh, if you've not got one with you, feel free to look on the screen. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I want to talk about three things from these verses this morning. The first is the reality of suffering. The second is the hope of glory. And then the third is how do we live then here in the not yet? 
So the reality of suffering. In many places, the Bible talks about suffering. It leads us to expect that suffering will happen, that hardships will come our way. In Acts chapter 14, it's talking about the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. And they've been going around, they've been starting churches in different places. Everything's been going well. And then they're on the return journey and they're visiting again some of these towns and villages where they started the church. And they're wanting to put some foundations in place for these new Christians. It says they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, if you were supporting a church plan, if you were wanting to encourage some brothers and sisters who've started a new church in their little town, and you wanted to lay a foundation, would this be the message that you gave them? Because this was Paul's message. He wanted to encourage them to continue in the faith. And particularly, knowing that tribulations will come their way, he didn't want them to say, oh, hang on, I thought this was going to be easy. It's harder than I thought. I'll give it a miss. He wanted them to know from the start that tribulations would be part of the deal, that hardship would come with the territory. And through those tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom of God. He wanted them to be ready. Well, listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, we hear about wars at the moment, don't we? When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. The nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. It's like Jesus is describing our nightly news, isn't he? 2,000 years ago, he's telling us what the way of the world will be. He's setting us up as his followers, as his disciples. These things will happen. Be ready. There's a reality. I think we all know this to one degree or another. I suspect most of us in this room have suffered in some way. 18 months ago, I had a call from my dad. He wanted to talk to me. Uh, and he shared with me uh, that he'd been having some health issues. He has a degenerative disease. And I've seen over the last year and a half his health declining gradually. Every time I see him, it's just taken another step. That's something that just seen up close and personal, that's the world we live in. Some of you have had to leave places where you come from because of conflict and because of opposition. Your homes haven't been places of safety, so you've had to go elsewhere. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been asked by numbers of people to pray for them because of mental health struggles that they're going through. It seems, honestly, that's becoming an increasingly common prayer request, that people know that stuff in their mind just isn't quite as it should be, and they're asking for help with it. They're asking for prayer for it. There's a mental health crisis going on. In our day. And of course, you turn on the news and you see the global situation, see how things have gone in the war in Ukraine over the last few days. But before that was on the news, we were hearing about Tonga, weren't we? That underwater volcano and uh, that tidal wave and cut off from communication and the destruction of property and life there. And just think about what the news has been like for the last two years and the COVID pandemic. And hearing every day, we're getting the numbers of people who've died and uh, getting up into big figures. But when the death rate is just a number, when the amount of people sick has become so big that we can't talk about individuals, it's just statistics, it shows 
what's going on. Suffering is real. And so I love, I love that the Bible engages with the reality of the world we live in. I love, the, I love that the Bible doesn't push it away. So let's ignore that. Let's bury that idea and just talk about some happy, joyful things. The Bible gets into the reality of life. It's a world of suffering. You know, in some Eastern philosophies, the way they'll talk about suffering is that if you become spiritual, it's like you become immune to having to deal with it. You become so spiritual that suffering doesn't quite phase you anymore. And in many parts of the world, they'll teach you that's the way to deal with suffering. You want to ignore it. You want to push it down. You want to keep a distance from it. Let's lean away from suffering and find a way that we can engage with the world without having to deal with that. In many Western settings, particularly around the health and wealth and prosperity idea, they'd say something like this. If you have enough faith, you won't have to suffer. If you have enough faith, God won't let you be sick. God won't let you be poor. God won't let you go without. Everything will be absolutely fine if you have enough faith. You know, I put gospel in inverted commas there because that is nothing to do with the gospel. When you read the Bible, that's not what it says. We follow a saviour who suffered himself, Jesus. He, he had nowhere to lay his head. He was beaten, he was betrayed, and he was killed. And he told us as his followers that we shouldn't expect all to be well. He leads us to expect that following him means taking up a cross. That's what being a disciple is. The Bible engages the gritty reality of suffering and it tells us that God will work in that suffering and God will work through that suffering and through those tribulations, the kingdom will come. In the New Testament, James writes this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The trials will come. Or Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And here in our verses in Romans that I've read today, it talks about the very world we live in, the creation itself. It says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. until Now, this is because of the fall. Because the first humans, Adam and Eve, and then all of us since have turned from God, have rebelled against him, the very earth itself it's cursed. It's misfiring. It doesn't work as it should do. Creation is broken. It's groaning. And not only the creation itself, it says we ourselves are groaning as well. We know it, don't we? We know that things don't work as they should be. We know what it's like as we get older and our bodies start to not quite work the way they're meant to. As those aches and pains accumulate, as those conditions and diseases pile up and our bodies break down, something inside us screams out, this isn't right, this isn't how it should be, this isn't what we're made for. We know we live in a broken world. That's what Romans 8 tells us. John Piper says that this passage that we've read is the greatest corrective to the prosperity gospel. 
You know, if you want to hold an aloof view to suffering, if you want to um, act as though suffering isn't real and it won't hit you, it's only really possible to do that from a particularly privileged position. In most of history, it would have seemed ludicrous to try and build a life immune from suffering because suffering was all around. In most parts of the world, the same is true. Now, in our culture, we try and inoculate ourselves against it. We try and build comforts into our lives. We try and engage heavily in the here and now so we don't have to think about the world we live in and how brutal it is and how much pain there is. You can try it, but it doesn't last for long. That kind of aloof view to suffering can't survive that diagnostic. It can't survive the things that will inevitably happen to all of us. Suffering is real. But suffering isn't ultimate. Because our, verse, our, our passage started with this. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if suffering is real, then we need to say the glory to come is more real, is more substantive, is bigger and more powerful. And it describes it like creation's grown in like childbirth. I think that's a very deliberately chosen illustration. I think it's a great illustration. Because in childbirth, there's pain, but it's pain for a purpose. It's pain for something. I've spoken to numbers of people who've given birth about their experience, and they'll talk about how, how excruciating the pain is, and yet the joy of seeing that child, that newborn baby, somehow transcends and overwhelms even the great pain. And there's something like that that Paul is saying here. This is what life is like. There will be suffering in the now, but there's a glory to come that overshadows, that transcends, that goes beyond whatever we might have to endure in the here and now. There's a future glory where all the pain, all the groanings and all the struggles will be gone. Jesus will return and he will make all things right. He will make wars end and peace come in their place. He will make sickness end and wellness come in its place. He will make death end and life will reign. Harmony will reign. The world will be put right. Jesus will return. And this is described in Revelation chapter 21. Where it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Hallelujah. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wow, what a glory. So if creation's longing and waiting, and we're longing and waiting, and it says we're waiting for our adoption as sons. Now, we were hearing last week about what it is to be adopted, to be called children of God. And we're called that now. We are the children of God. 
And yet on that day when Jesus returns, it's like that adoption will be confirmed. Final rubber stamp, yes, you have that status forever as children of God. And it says that will be in the redemption of our bodies. You know, these bodies that don't work, these bodies that ache, these bodies that hurt will be replaced, will be given renewed resurrection bodies, perfect, glorious in the image of Christ. And creation's waiting for this too. And doesn't that just transform the way you suffer? You know, when you're going through hardship, when you're in the ringer, when you know there's something glorious to come, it means we don't have to detach from it. It means we don't have to find a philosophy that can somehow push down and pretend suffering isn't real because we're a bit more spiritual than that. But it also means we don't despair. It means the suffering that's on us doesn't crush us, doesn't consume us, doesn't pass so heavy on us that it feels like there's no escape. It means that we can suffer with hope. And hope changes everything. When you've got the hope, when you see there is something glorious to come, it changes how things are in the here and now. In Thessalonians, Paul's speaking about those who have died in Christ. And he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's not saying don't grieve. He's saying when you grieve, it will be a different kind of grief. When you grieve, it will look different. It will have a fundamentally different character to what a hopeless grief would have. Because you have hope. Because you know there's a God who's at work in this, through this, and who will make all things right. And that changes how you engage with the situation. I grew up in Sheffield in the 1990s, and so it probably comes as no surprise to you that one of my favourite bands is Pulp, uh, and one of their best songs is Common People. Uh, and Common People basically is about uh, this girl from Greece who comes over to study in the UK. She has a really uh, rich family, um, but she makes friends in the UK with some poor people, uh, and she decides that she wants to start living the way common people do. And so uh, she starts um, building life in this way of experiencing poverty, experiencing hardship. And the song is all about her trying to do this. But the singer's saying, actually, however much she tries to engage with hardship and suffering the way the rest of us do, she'll never quite get it because if she called her dad, he could stop it all. Because this isn't ultimate for her. This isn't something that there's no escape from. This isn't just kind of looking as far as she can into the future and saying, seeing nothing but hopelessness because she's got a dad who can bring this situation to something different for her. And that's something akin to biblical hope, that our dad is looking on this situation. Our heavenly father is looking on the suffering that we endure now and knowing that one day he will bring us to something totally different. So we don't suffer like those who have no hope. We don't suffer like those who see this is all there will be for me now and into eternity. We suffer as those who know that this is for a season, but there's a glory to come because the present sufferings do not compare with the glory that will be revealed. Desmond Tutu says that hope is being able to see that there is a light despite all the darkness. The darkness might press in. It might feel like a dark moment. I want you to know this. There is a light. There is hope. God is at work. 
So as we walk by the Spirit, because that's what Romans 8 is about. It's about us who walk by the Spirit. It means when suffering and hardship come our way, we can approach it in a very different way. Verses 24 and 25 of our passage say, In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I just want to land this by suggesting maybe practically what it might look like to live in hope in the midst of suffering and in the midst of hardship. And what we're told in the passage is we wait for it with patience. So it means as we're living in the here and now, we wait patiently. And that word patiently, it literally means long-tempered. So think by contrast of what it would be to be short-tempered. You're quick to snap. You're quick to lash out. Maybe you're backbiting against others because the suffering has pressed so hard on you. You're taking it out on those around you. It says, no, wait patiently. Even in hardship, be long-suffering. Be patient. Be long-tempered. I remember um, when I was doing a teaching job that I absolutely hated. I detested going to work every morning. It, It was a hardship upon me. There was a moment when I'd handed in my notice. Now, I still had to go to work. I was still doing the same things. But seeing the hope to come that something would be different, it radically transformed how I was. I was much less um, ready to just kind of lash out uh, at what I was doing. And I was much more patient in those days, knowing that they were not permanent for me. So we wait patiently. And then we draw comfort from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. He's in your life as one who will comfort. So as you're going through pain, as you're engaging with hardship in life, he's in your life as one to comfort. So lean into him and draw the comfort from him that he gives. That's why he's in your life. He's not just there to create exciting moments for you. He's there to carry you and comfort you through the hardship. And then learn to pray prayers of lament. I don't know if you've ever read in the Psalms and um, you read the way David or the other psalmists are praying and you're like, whoa, that's a bit full on, isn't it? I, I mean, uh, do we pray like the Psalms pray? Or you read the book of Lamentations, which was about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and laying out all the pain and hardship that they're going through. And he's pouring out the pain to God. I wonder if sometimes in our prayer we're a bit too polite, we're a bit too formal. It's like we hold back the reality of the situation. It's good to cry out your heart to God. It's good to do it with a flavour of faith. It's pouring out pain with faith that God is God and God is good. It's not pouring it out as though God's somehow in the wrong, but it's taking it to God in faith. Let's learn to pray those kind of prayers. And let's look for God's purpose in it. Let's look look for God's purposes in whatever we're going through. Now, God doesn't directly cause our sufferings and challenges, but none of them are outside his control. God is sovereign. God is in charge. And God can and he does work good through the things that we go through. Tony Evans says, God is faithful to bring good through even our hardest times. 
Think about the story of Joseph in the Bible. He was treated horribly. His brothers sold him into slavery. They beat him up and they sold him. And then, as a slave, he was then accused of a crime he didn't commit and he was left to rot in prison. He went through some awful stuff. Now, through that, God actually used it to position him. So he ended up getting a job with a position of authority and getting a prophetic picture uh, of how there'd be famine in the world so he could store up food and mean that loads and loads of people's lives were saved. God worked good through his hardship. God will work good through our hardship. Now, often this is a lot easier to see in hindsight. So you get to the end of the situation and you look back and you're like, ah, I see it. I see what God was doing. In the moment, it's a lot harder. You know, if you're Joseph in that prison cell, it's a lot harder to say, hang on, God's using this, but God does use this. So in the moment, there's that call for faith. I believe God's doing something. I've got to hold on to that. Pray, even when you don't know how. Our passage continues, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, we'll be hearing more about this from John next week, so I'm going to leave that one for them. But pray and let the Spirit help you pray, even when you don't know what to pray for. And then finally, whatever's going on, worship anyway. Worship anyway. Callum started the service by reading from Psalm 34. David, in his hardship, in his situation that he was in. I will extol the Lord at all times. Wow. He's worshipping even when the circumstances are not good because God is good. God is always good. God is great. And you might be thinking, I'm, I, I don't understand everything that's going on to me. Uh, on with me. This is hard. I, I don't get it. But hold on to this. God is good. God is good. I remember praying through the night with a friend who'd been through a really hard time. And this was someone who loved to pray, who loved to worship. But in this season of hardship, the kind of prayers that were prayed, they just felt raw, they felt real. It's like, wow, okay, this is, this is worship. Coming to God with all the pain and declaring his goodness anyway. Julie Lowe says some of our most precious heartfelt praise may be born out of pain, hardship, or lament. It will not look, sound, or even be expressed in an upbeat way. Instead, it will be expressed as a broken hallelujah. I love that phrase, a broken hallelujah. This is all I can give. I can't give a, a, a full kind of a polished hallelujah right now, but I can give a broken one. And so that's what I will give. <laughs>